you're listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast, where the forecast here is always compelling as we discuss real-life challenges, successes, and stories from the journey to Hybrid Cloud with your host, Andre Tost. All right. Hello. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Hybrid Cloud Podcast. Today's guest is Ray Harishankar. Uh, Ray is an IBM Fellow and VP of Assets, Architecture, and Platforms. We already know where this is going. We're going to talk about all these things in much more detail. Uh, thank you for joining. Happy to be here, Andre. I appreciate the invite. Right before we started the recording, talked about the fact that we worked together, even though just briefly, about 15 years ago, which I guess is, is a sad reminder of how time <laughs> flies when you're having fun. But as always, we'll start with introductions. So if you could tell us a bit about your background, kind of how you came to be where you are today, and then also a bit about what you do today. Happy to. Well, I have advanced degrees in, that is master's degree in physics and computer science. And physics was in India and computer science was at The Ohio State University. So I came to study at The Ohio State University um, and stayed in Columbus ever since. And some of the listeners may be saying, why do I keep saying The Ohio State University? It was always called The Ohio State University when everything else is called just, you know, Penn State University or Michigan State University. And then we officially made it part of the name this past week or something like that. So maybe we are the only school in the entire country that is called the whatever. Anyway. Um, Interesting. Even though now, and sorry to interrupt, but as you're saying that, and I like to point this out, that I have two sons and both of them uh, have degrees in physics as well. Ah, awesome. See, great field to be in. And towards the end, I'll tell you why I'm even more fascinated to be doing what I'm doing. And interestingly enough, my first job was teaching physics to high school students. Loved it, enjoyed it, and it was a pretty good school. And they were challenging me. I was just a few years older than they were. And so it was refreshing for me to see their smart minds think. However, couldn't make a living out of it. So I had to (laughs) go find greener pastures. And that's how I got into programming. And to fast forward... I've been a software developer. I've been in product development. I've been in solutions development. I did some level of machine language programming as well years ago. And then going back to my physics roots, my very first implementation or project that I did was doing Fourier analysis for some structural integrity related stuff. And try doing this with machines of the 80s with no memory and no advanced libraries that you can invoke. So took a lot of doing, doing Jacobian matrix inversion and all that in really complicated manner, one step at a time. But it taught me a lot. And then when I came over to do programming in the United States, my very first reaction was, you guys are all so sloppy. You don't manage the memory well. You just keep declaring variables as you go along and don't clean up because memory was cheap, uh, relatively speaking, whereas we had to count every bit, uh, not even byte, every bit that we used. So it was good discipline. So I've always been, Andre, focused on optimization, performance optimization, right? And then doing things tight. So when you started in that, did you join IBM right away or did you work somewhere else? No, I joined IBM in 1999. I used to work for a company called CompuServe that was acquired by America Online. And there were only two big companies I worked in my 
40-year career in in U.S. One is America Online and the other is IBM. So 15 years in one place and now 23 years in the other makes up pretty much my professional career. So I'm a lifer wherever I go and I enjoy doing what I'm doing. And even at IBM in 1999, I started as a band nine architect, building solutions for clients. And I enjoyed doing that. And through a strange sequence of events, I started running that group that I was a part of. I was the fifth or sixth member of an architecture and technology center of excellence. And in a year or so, I found myself to be leading it. We had about a dozen people or so. And then within a few years, through aggressive hiring, as well as through the acquisition of PwC, I found myself leading a team of 250 people. And I was still an architect at that time, working on client engagements. And that was the most fun I ever had, Andre, because this was a team of highly opinionated, analytical, stubborn architects that you need to lead and and work with and get some productive work out of. But we learned a lot from each other. It was by design or an inverse pyramid where we had more band 10s than band 9s and more band 9s than band 8s and nobody below that. It was such an experienced team. And that gave me the podium really to work across geographies, work across business units. Now, you may recall that at that time, we had DB2, Tivoli, WebSphere, Lotus, and GTS, and GBS. All these different divisions were there, and S&D. And they all did technical work, and there were smart people, MO and research, I forgot about that, embedded everywhere. So I was actually like a kid in a candy store. The main reason I joined IBM was that I could work with all these smart people and work across these business units. I was thrilled. I pretty much fast-forwarded myself from being a Band 9 architect to, uh, I don't know when I became a Band 10 architect, but then I became a DE in 2003, a fellow in 2006, and then maybe a vice president in 2010 or 11, somewhere in that time frame. It's been rapid progress, and people usually say, what do you attribute that to? I don't draw any boundaries around myself. If I need something from someone at IBM, I have no hesitation slacking them, picking up the phone, calling them, emailing them, saying, hey, I need help. What's the worst that can happen? They're going to say no. But surprisingly, most people say, how can I help you? Which is human nature, right? And that's what I would do as well. So this is how I established a very good network collaboration. And Andre, you recall that you know you and I had connected through George Golombos when we were talking about composition capabilities using SOA at that time. And it was interesting discussions. And that's how I got connected to a number of people at IBM I'm still learning from. And so that reminds me of a question I mean to ask you. So you just mentioned that you got to lead a large team of people, stubborn, opinionated people, but all very smart. So how do you balance the leadership slash management aspect with staying up to date on the technologies and the trends and the things that are actually happening? You know, that is one area I am an anti-pattern, right? I'm not a good example of how to do that because I know I probably don't have much of a life outside of work, but it is difficult. Now, I love to do both. I know I'm good at managing people, teams, driving them towards a common goal. And I honestly tell you, I would not have achieved 
many of what I've achieved and a number of the other DEs in that team had achieved if we hadn't worked together. So that 250 people team, we cut it down to about 140 people or so over time because that was the core group that existed for five, six years running. We created things that stood the test of time and reflecting back 25 DEs and four or five fellows have come out of that group. And that I think was an incubator for a lot of thought leadership. And that was what was motivating. You know, so managing them to after a point, Andre became somewhat easier because you empower them, you give them a purpose. And like I said, these are senior people, right? I may not have been able to do the same with a group that is a typical pyramid and had a lot of lower banded folks, whereas these were self-driven, self-motivated leaders. And all that I needed was to give them the right opportunities and then they're on their own, which was the greatest thing. I didn't have to push anyone there around. So that's the strength that I would say, but it was tough. Keeping up with technology, uh, the rate and pace at which it was changing, man, that was difficult. That's why I had to give that team up after five, six years because I couldn't keep up with all the demands of the work. So I moved into doing technical strategy work. Then I moved on to do assets. I was the CTO for assets at that time. So I didn't quite lead the same size team, but I did have leadership responsibilities. So being a CTO, I didn't have people directly reporting to me, but you provide technical direction to that. Then I went on to do the Apple IBM partnership where we created the Apple Garage. Then I came back to lead as a program for consulting. So instead of just being a CTO, now I knew enough about the business to run that. Now, this is where I moved away from being technologist to being management executive. But I still did spend a lot of time on the engineering side of things. So one of the accomplishments was to build up an engineering team that was good enough in the services side to be close to commercial-grade product development. The testament to that is when we acquired companies, when we being IBM Consulting acquired software companies earlier, they would go to software group for supporting it on an ongoing basis. Whereas for the last three years, they've always given me the first right of refusal, so to speak, where if a company is acquired, we get a chance to say, look, we have the skill set to support them. And so we now support a whole bunch of assets and many of them are from the acquisition which is a testament to the establishment of an engineering discipline within assets. One thing that was interesting that happened was we were asked to set up a quantum consulting team within IBM Consulting. And I raised my hand and said, I'll do it. So in addition to all of my responsibilities for about six months to a year, maybe a year actually, um, Heather Higgins and I worked together to build out a consulting team for quantum within her organization. We had about 50 plus people hired in a matter of six months or so. And then now they've all moved under Jay and Dario when whole quantum was consolidated into one organization, but found a chance to talk to a number of these quantum physicists and people who are much smarter than myself about quantum mechanics and fundamental concepts of that intersecting with computation. I find the topic itself very intriguing, and I've been looking around to find a guest for this podcast, actually, to talk about quantum computing, and eventually I will find somebody to ask some dumb questions to. And at the same time, while it's close to me, is also, I mentioned my, my sons, right? One of them is actually uh, doing a PhD in quantum physics at Duke, so... Oh, wow. That's another reason why I'm, I'm always kind of my eyebrows go up when the topic comes up. Well, I'm sure we're going to get an episode or two on that topic. 
yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And I'm sure that a lot of people will enjoy that. Just to wrap up my history at IBM, Andre, while I talk about all of these, two things that I've always focused on is doing client work. I talked about having been in product development and in solution development and such. I finally settled on developing solutions for clients as my primary expertise. So when I was leading this architecture team, I wasn't just a manager. I was working on client engagements pretty much full time. I'll do my administrative work later in the night and do client work you know, during the day. But that was extremely beneficial because definitely in consulting, you have to stay grounded in the reality of what the clients are asking you. So throughout all of this, I was always grounding my work in client scenarios and highly recommend that to everybody who is part of my team. Almost no one is exclusively on stuff outside of client work. Everybody is engaged in one client engagement or the other in one way, shape or form. I think that's one of the things that I've always focused on. The second thing that I've done that I'm proud of is the fact that throughout these has created 25 plus DEs and four or five fellows. That's the outcome at the higher levels of achievement. No doubt I'm proud of that, but I'm equally proud of the fact that I've been able to mentor, grow directly and indirectly a number of people across the company through mentoring and coaching and helping the technical community grow. That's always been a passion of mine. So that's one thing I do want to make sure I highlight as I reflect back and say, here's what I've done at IBM and in my career. Okay. I want to touch back on a couple of the things that you mentioned. So, I mean, as you talked about being an architect and growing your sphere of influence at IBM and so forth, obviously during that time, the technologies evolve at a rapid pace, at an increasingly rapid pace going from, you know, client, server, three-tier kind of architecture, right. all the way now into obviously everything is about cloud computing and hybrid cloud computing. When it comes to assets, that's something I like to touch on because that has been your job for quite some time. And I'm wondering how you keep up with that increasing pace of change and making sure that the things you produce at assets actually have an appropriate shelf life, right? And don't become obsolete. I feel like throughout my career, We've always been seeing this opportunity of greater reuse, of saying right. we've produced something, other people should reuse that and not invent their own. And I think we've, we've always been struggling with this and we're struggling to this day with it. You know, great questions. I'll parse it out into two pieces first and then try to you know bridge them together. Because one is about how do you keep current in this rapidly changing technology landscape? Obviously, we can talk about learning, reading, taking courses, all of the above. One thing I've always believed in and I've done well is I would go and volunteer to do things that I had no idea how to get. I'd put up my hand and say, can I go help figure that out? And that came not from arrogance or being cocky, but came from the realization that, look, I can surround myself with a number of smart people. And if we can't figure it out, nobody else can. That's how I operated. So I'd pull in people from all different business units with the right expertise and then turn around and focus on the problem and try to fix it. That is actually what gave me the exposure to the various business unit and business unit leaders and the technical leaders within that. TT studies that we used to do is a great example of that, where you're asked to solve a problem that company wants you to take a look at and give an opinion or a point of view. There is no right or wrong, but you have to debate and discuss and argue about 
the merits of various aspects of the problem you're talking about, whether it be, you know, in the early days, it used to be service orientation or assets or mobile or edge computing or IoT. And I used to do at least one TT study every year. It's not because I loved it. It's the exercise of doing it that taught you so much in such a short time. And you are learning from points of view of people from software group systems, storage, research, and services. And we all have a healthy debate and still walk away as friends, but walk away smarter than we walked into the discussion with. That's how I learn a lot. And now there is so much available on the web, Udemy and YouTube and other podcasts and such. I was going to say, part of what you just mentioned, obviously, it's a privilege to have these opportunities within a large company in such a diverse company as, as IBM is, right, in terms of skills and the technologies. But I feel like even outside of that, it has become easier yeah. to do these cross-disciplinary things and to kind of inform oneself because the information is all there. Yeah, information is there, and we just have to bring the right people together. The only thing about these podcasts and YouTube videos is it's pretty much one-directional. You get into a listen-only mode, you don't have an opportunity to debate and discuss that. So I try to facilitate some work groups or discussion groups that talk about some of those things. So I host this architecture forum for the last several years where we meet once a month. We talk about some topics and about 80, 90, sometimes 100 people attend it. And that spawns certain work. It's like the old software group architecture board. And, and I'm a firm believer in, in having that dialogue and debate to enrich yourself. So I'm answering one part of your question about how do I keep up? The other is you take the experiences of other people and apply that to creating reusable assets and reusable software building blocks. That requires a certain level of discipline and, in my view, a different kind of engineering to say, this is how you build things for reuse. That's one. And also, how do you build for extensibility. That's where new technology comes in. And so people often ask me, why do you have assets, architecture, and platforms as part of your scope? I was pretty adamant about it simply because my view is the architecture of what you build is essential to how you can have the asset be viable and survive the test of time and test of technologies. And we are moving more and more towards a platform notion where you can swap things in and out, and it also leads directly into composability, composable architectures, and how platforms enable that, and how our whole cloud, multi-cloud, hybrid cloud notion, and, and the work with the cloud-native architectures, all of them are facilitating this notion of composability. So it's a continuum in my view. So if you are able to build the right architecture into these assets, then they become not just reusable, but also extensible from a technology standpoint. So how do you make sure people find the right assets for the right purpose? I've always found that to be one of the biggest challenges is that the time it takes for me to find and consume a reusable asset must be shorter than if I build it all by myself. That is correct. Finding is one part of it, and then understanding and extending it it's not going to be, I can just plop it right in and it works, right? There are a few that are like that, but there are many that require some level of extension, customization, hopefully only configuration, and still come out as total savings altogether. 
Now, we are still cracking that nut because that is as much a cultural problem as it is a technology problem. We have tried to address both of them, at least within services. Five years ago, when I took over the asset charter for consulting, the first action was to create such a repository where people can go and search. So how do I locate assets? And how do I locate what I can use? We have asset sharing platform as it's free for every IBMer to access, where it's built on the Lighthouse platform. So it is it's similar user experience and such. But you can go in and search for any area that you are looking for an asset in. And we have at any given time, I don't know, 1,200 to 1,500 discrete pieces of software that's out there. And you say, hmm, where does that come from? That is community submitted set of assets. So you and I can go in and submit an asset in three steps. That's all it takes. You say what it is, put some metadata, point to the source, and we'll infer a lot of things from that and then create an entry that now becomes searchable so you could create a widget for doing certain things. Now, chances are there are others who have created similar widgets. So we'll have a bunch of stuff that is around the same space. Chatbot is a famous example. The world doesn't need another chatbot, but we always create one more. So we go in and create another chatbot in this case and put it there. So which chatbot do I pick? So we do some housekeeping at the back end to make sure we rationalize some of this and all that, Andre, but I'm not going to go into all that. But we try to keep that 1,200, 1,500 pieces of assets reasonably relevant. But it is still a lot of noise if you want to find three things from that 1,200 things. But you can find that. And then we have a class of those assets that we say is good enough to be even commercialized, which means it's big, it's worth a lot of money, and client may be willing to pay for it. And so we have about 150 or so, quote unquote, commercialized assets out of this 1,500. So about 10% is commercialized good assets that you can take and reuse. And these are not things that you can build in 100 hours or 200 hours, right? It'll take you a few months to build it. Uh, it, it these are of that size. The granularity is fairly coarse that you will you can rebuild it easily. And then we reuse them in client engagements. And that's how we also make money off of these assets as well as continue to enhance and improve them. So you already answered half of what would have been my next question in terms of assets. Is this something you just reuse internally? Is it something you sell? Or is there also an angle to it where you quote open source an asset? I mean, it could be a code asset, right? Yeah, all of the above. And there is a fourth piece as well, which is when we sell to clients, typically we can sell it as is, meaning include this into the solution we are building for a client. But then some of them have matured enough that they can become products. My definition of an asset is that we call out four things as an asset, code, software, and then models, analytic models. We also have architectures that are assets and then codified data that is also an asset for us. So these are the only four things, PowerPoints or not, right? Just mere documentation is not. They are assets in a general sense, but not in the software sense that we are using. So whenever I say assets or commercialized assets, they have to be in one of these four, and majority of them are either code, architectures, or 
models or a combination of them. So to, to answer your question, if I were to look at where would these assets reside and how do I manage and maintain them, they are actually going to be supported by usage in clients and in an assets model, or we can give it to them in a software as a service model, or we can give it to our product technology brethren and ask them to productize it, or it becomes part of a product feature. The other thing we have started to do now within consulting is we are pitting them as a consulting software products. So IBM technology is not putting it onto their brand, but we are putting it as a fitted product that you can download, more or less like shrink-wrapped code that you can download and install. They're not really large or coarse-grained. We have begun to experiment with them, and we've got about half a dozen of them working well right now, going through standard channels. And the one thing that I always try to do, um, I want to make sure I, I make a connection here is, all of this is good if it does deliver the business value that our client is looking for and what IBM is looking for. Actually, you know, I'm just looking at the time here and we're slowly running out of time. I think I will connect with you offline because, you know, it just so happens that I just started a new team within IBM Security where one of the, our missions is to produce assets. So I think I'll reach out to you to maybe get some more of your experiences and advice on that. And by the way, we haven't really talked about hybrid cloud or cloud in general all that much. At the same time, I feel like every little thing you mentioned, every little topic we just talked about directly applies to this world of hybrid cloud. Totally. Every client that we are looking at or working with obviously has multi-cloud and the work that we do is hybrid cloud in nature in that it's never just IBM Cloud or even never just Azure, they say, oh, well, we have this on Azure, that on GCP or Amazon or whatever. And then that's always the case. And so we need to have our skill set and experience tuned to that. Uh, one thing I will use this as a to make one point is what this multi-cloud hybrid cloud has led to is cloud and cloud native architecture, domain-driven design, event architecture, but we are able to actually compose applications, compose architectures, compose solutions using building blocks that are created by us, created by our partners, created by our clients. And that composition of applications or composable application and composable architecture is where I think we are headed next. And so it does come back to the hybrid cloud notion uh, in that without cloud, that would simply not be possible. And the other technologies that I just listed, right, EDA and, and, and DDD and such, are all becoming architectural enablers of that. And, and that's an exciting piece of work that we are beginning to engage in. And I see a lot of things happening in that space in the coming year, couple of years. Which leads me nicely into my last question before we let you go is... You could give us an example of something really exciting and cool that you're working on right now where you can't wait to get to work in the morning. You know, to be honest, composable architectures and composable applications is something that is really exciting for me. And I've tried to make it a point to spend some time every day on this. Otherwise, you get caught up in the day-to-day -day set of things and don't get enough time to spend on this. But I do make sure I spend some time on this, even if it means having a discussion with some of the other experts in the space. Even today at the Architecture Forum, we had a discussion around kicking off 
work groups that will go off and, and address this. And Bala was raising a point about, hey, how do you deal with observability and security and other aspects of this in such a thing? We need to have a point of view on that. So every day we keep discovering new things that we need to address in some way, shape or form. But I'm also a big fan of iteratively doing stuff. So we have set ourselves a goal for producing something every 90 days that's tangible, that we can build upon, review and go on. So we have a goal for what we want to get done in Q3. And that's what's exciting to me. How do we go and make some of the things really happen? And it's not something we are dreaming up. It is something we are harvesting. We are working with a number of clients right now on various aspects of this. We are doing event-driven architecture of one client. We are doing DDD and decentralization of data using DDD in another client. We are doing cloud native in a number of clients. So we put all of these things together and say, that's what it is. So it's not, you know, blue sky. But it is rooted on, as I go back to my earlier point about being rooted in client scenarios, this is rooted in client experiences and engagements. And that's what's exciting to me. All right. Very cool. Well, with that, that leaves me to just thank you for joining us today. It was a very interesting discussion. Oh, absolutely. The pleasure was distinctly mine. And hopefully the people who are hearing it take a point or two out of this. And if you have any questions, concern, or points you want to debate with me, I'm happy. You know where you can reach me. So thanks for the opportunity, Andrea. All right, great. With that, we'll wrap up today's episode. Thank you all for listening, and uh, I hope to see you all soon.